0: Welcome to the Arts Entrepreneurship Podcast, Making Art Work. We highlight how entrepreneurs align their artistry, passion, and vision to create and pursue opportunities to capture value in the arts. The views expressed by guests on the Arts Entrepreneurship Podcast are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the views of the podcast or its hosts. The appearance of a guest on the podcast, the venture they represent, or reference to any product or service does not imply an endorsement or recommendation by the podcast or its hosts. The content provided is for entertainment and informational purposes only and does not constitute business advice. Here are your hosts, Andy Heiss and Nick Petrella.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Nick Petrella. And I'm Andy Heiss. With us today is visual artist Chris Dahlquist. Chris's photography can be seen in a variety of settings, including galleries, art fairs, large scale public installations, and in hundreds of individual corporate and civic collections. In addition to her studio practice, Chris is passionate about helping artists and creative entrepreneurs build sustainable careers. Through curriculum development, workshops, lectures, and mentoring, she's worked with hundreds of artists throughout the U.S. As a result, Chris consults with municipalities, arts organizations, and businesses to ensure that the individual artist is at the center of art support programs and policies. Chris, welcome to the podcast and thank you for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me. Glad to spend my morning with you.
1: This is part one of our interview with Chris Dahlquist. When you and I last talked, you were just wrapping up a series of art fairs that took place over the summer. Um, How were those art fairs uh, coming off the pandemic and um, especially compared to previous years?
2: Boy, it was such a, um, they were celebratory. They were so much fun, um, both from the audience perspective and the artist perspective. We were all so anxious to get back together. You know, I think um, a lot of artists that do festivals like that are doing it because they love the interaction with the audience, and so we really were missing that over the last Mm -hmm. couple of years. Um, From a business perspective, they were also really, really great um, with folks not having extra discretionary spending that they might not be traveling with or eating out, um, feeling like they deserved a little treat. Mm -hmm. They were... um, they were purchasing artwork and reconnecting with artists that they had seen for years and years. So it was, it was lots of fun on lots yeah. of different levels.
0: That's great. So, Chris, did the pandemic impact your online sales, and if so, how?
2: I think, um, well, pri- primarily before the pandemic, I had an online presence, but not really an active sales platform. And so that was kind of one of the first things, not kind of, it was the first thing we did uh, when things began to shut down. Um, I had had an online um, shop before, primarily during the holidays or times like that. And so we dusted that off and expanded that and um, used it as a way to connect with people. But but really, I think for me, it's about uh, more about building relationship with audience and my collectors. And so kind of a simple um, shopping site wasn't enough. And so I did lots of online programming as well that was really about relationship building uh, between myself and collectors, between myself and other artists. So while I did have online sales, I think the majority of what we were doing was building relationships.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Like in your last, you talking about those relationships with other artists and collectors uh, at the art fairs, right? Maintaining those relationships um, since you couldn't do those, trying to do that online, right?
2: Yeah, uh, I did a deep dive with a couple of other art festival artists, a painter from Milwaukee and a sculptor from Pennsylvania, from Pittsburgh. And we really did dove into why we do art festivals. What were the things that we enjoy about it the most? Why do collectors collect at art festivals? And we broke down what, what's actually happening there at these events and how it, was there a way that we could build something online that uh, incorporated a lot of those different aspects?
1: Yeah. And, and in, your, in your answers here, you're saying we a lot. You work with your husband in your studio, right?
2: I do. Thank you. Yes, I work with my husband, who's a musician, uh, Kyle Dahlquist. um, But his uh, day job, for lack of a better word, is um, to work in the studio with me. Um, And then uh, up until December of last year, um, when she made an excellent move to California, I also had a longtime studio assistant, a sculptor named Megan Gallant, that worked for us and was an integral part of our studio
1: yeah so what what is what's the dynamic like working with your with your spouse um, in a professional setting?
2: Well, I think because um Kyle is a fellow creative we um we understand that creative impulse in one another despite the fact he's in a different discipline, which i I think actually maybe uh, makes it a little bit easier because we're not in the same discipline. but we've worked together so long now. Um, I will give away my age if I tell you exactly how long that's been, but we've been making art of one kind or another together for uh, over 30 years. And so I think um, it has, the work has developed, the artwork has developed based on our complementary skill sets. And so I think it's, um, while my name might be out front on the artwork, his contribution to it is just as important to the final outcome uh, and what's possible in the studio. He's really the, I'm going to figure out how this thing's going to get built or get put together or, you know, kind of whatever kind of crazy ideas I come up with. He's kind of the engineering and the technique behind it.
0: On your website, you mentioned that after spending the early part of your career in commercial photography, you decided to focus on works for art galleries and exhibits. Can you unpack that for us and describe that transition?
2: Sure. It was... um it was actually, um, I didn't spend that long in commercial photography and film. That was in my 20s. And it, it was, you know, I had been on the path to photography from the time I was really young. I decided I wanted to be a photographer when I was in junior high. Um, but I didn't really have many examples of how that might live in the world, and so most of the examples, particularly as a kiddo, you, you know, you, there's the school portrait photographer and there's, you know, it's all of these, there's the wedding photographer, there's the, you just don't have many examples of the ways someone might make a living with photography. So uh, the most logical thing for me was, uh, you know, I did some work photographing events and then in a commercial studio and it was, actually uh, Actually, it felt a little bit like the rug was pulled out from under me because while I liked the work that I was doing, or the daily work, I didn't like the outcome of what I was doing. Um, and so it was kind of this um, dark moment of, oh, my gosh, do I really not want to be a photographer? Like, after all of these years of thinking that's what I was going to do. And so what I did was I, re- I didn't read... I didn't set out to do gallery work or to do festivals. I just set out to fall back in love with photography and to find my artwork again. And um, I had stopped making artwork because I had my camera, a camera in my hands, all day for my job. So it became very difficult for me to be motivated to make artwork in the evening. And so that was my initial um, motivation: was I just need to return to. The love of photography and whatever that that means um and then tried to find or carve out a path that included photography um outside of that commercial setting you know um like I said I loved the work but at the end of the day I was I felt like I was um shilling some products that I didn't really feel uh great about and so I needed to find another way
1: Uh, So when you started down that path of sort of pursuing your, um, finding your artistic voice again, um, and you did start uh, selling work or showing in galleries and that sort of thing, was there a point in time where you said, okay, I think I could make this work rather than having to focus entirely on commercial work? Mm
2: -hmm. Well, I think part of what gave me the flexibility to do that is the nature of the work I was doing was episodic. So I would work, I would work on a commercial for a period of time. I would work on a commercial job, but I had this flexibility in my schedule. And so it started out doing more of that work and gradually just accepting fewer jobs and fewer jobs and fewer jobs. So it wasn't, there was not a demarcation of now I'm doing this. It just gradually, it's the balance started to tip the other way, hmm. where I was mm-hmm. doing more artwork than I was commercial work, um, and you know, fortunately, um, at that time, um, Kyle was working as um, he was repairing musical instruments, uh, brass, and in, he's a he plays brass. He was repairing brass instruments, and so there was also that um, kind of security uh, underlying our household uh, income as well that gave me gave me flexibility and. Uh, insurance and other necessities at the, at the time. Right. But it, uh, when I, the first shows I started to do when I returned to my artwork uh, were really, for me, about my workflow because I felt like I worked better against a deadline. That's the way I had always worked, is against some sort of commercial deadline or something. And so I, I did the first few shows to give myself a, a deadline, and then gradually it grew. Sure.
0: How and where do you market your art and which methods do you find most effective?
2: Well, so for me, I've built most of my career doing um, art festivals. And really, I see art festivals um, as a marketing tool, right? They're a place to get my art in front of people. Um, While sales do happen at the festivals, they're larger than just making sales. They're also making connections and then following up with those connections, sometimes over many, many years, um, particularly the larger the work has become, kind of the longer the tail on that. And so really, the festival itself is the largest marketing tool. I mean, in, in many cases, the festivals I'm doing, i putting my work in front of literally hundreds of thousands of people. And there's not many tools that you can get your work in front of that many people that that quickly, or that targeted an audience. Um, I didn't understand that when I started doing festivals. I thought that they were really just a place for transactions. It took me a while to figure out that really that was a marketing platform. Um, Mm -hmm. And the way I started doing festivals, uh, again, returning back to the way Kyle and I worked together, is I had done a couple of gallery shows and um, I, And it felt like I dropped off the work, and then I would hear back from the gallery a little bit, you know, a month later or six weeks later. Um, And I was kind of envious of the relationship that he built with audience when he was on stage. There was this energy that passed back and forth between musician and audience. And the most analogous thing I could figure out for a visual artist was the festivals where you're having this Direct loop, energy loop with your audience, and so it's all really back to tying together with being partnered with a musician.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's real time engagement.
2: Yeah. Right, right. In this um, communication and relationship building, I mean, all of that happening.
0: I just have a quick follow-up question: Do you think a lot of artists see fairs as simply transactional spaces, or do you think they think more like you do, or what you learned?
2: Um, I think that that's changing. I think that that's changing over time. Um, I've been doing festivals long enough that most of the, um, artists didn't have websites, didn't have an online sales platform. And so it, it, so 20 years ago, 20 plus years ago, when I started doing them, they were very much transactional because there wasn't an opportunity, um, for follow-up like there is now. Um, I think, uh, so I think it depends on to some degree um, how long the artist has been in the business, maybe um, their age, if they're digital native, or if they've been doing festivals for a long time. Um, I teach a number of workshops around, around that, around the, the festival being the first point of contact, uh, and then how to, how to maintain that relationship with someone um, and why you might want to do that besides just um, a sales per, from a transactional right. or s- sales perspective. Right? Yeah.
1: And so talking about uh, markets and marketing, um, is it important for uh, an artist to focus on their local market before they begin to branch out at things like art fairs?
2: I think that that depends on uh, who their market is and and where they are. I mean, I don't think that there's a there's not a one size fits all um, answer to any of this. Right. I think that's one of the um, troubles that we get into is uh, thinking about this kind of as a as a monolith. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that there's very few artists that um, can make their living in their local market, no matter what their discipline is um, or no matter what their market is. And I hear a lot of artists talk about, you know, well, my city, whatever, X, Y, Z, doesn't support me the way I need to be. Or, And I think that that's, that's really true across the board. Even if you look at artists in large markets, they're largely supported by people from other places coming to their market, right? And so I think it's important for all artists to look beyond just their local community and local market um, and which comes first, I think um, depends on a lot of factors that. Sure.
0: What would you tell a young person listening who may have passion and vision about photography, but not the resources to buy quality equipment? What do you think is the minimum needed to enter your field?
2: I th- I think it's so much less about equipment and so much more about what you're bringing to the equipment, I think whatever whatever cam you know the old cliche is whatever camera you have on you is the best camera, right? And so I think I think equipment is a really really small um, piece of piece of the puzzle. Um,
0: so a low low barrier to entry.
2: Really low barrier to entry. Um, yeah, it's about um, e- expression more than about more than about equipment. Um, I really learned that after coming out of the commercial world because I was accustomed to working in studios where I had access to every piece of equipment I could want. And and actually, when I came out of that, I really um, cast aside equipment. Um, I mean, I I don't like equipment. I don't. Um, some photographers, it's the same way in music. I'm sure you guys know that yeah. some folks are really into the gear and some folks will play whatever is sitting next to them. So I think it's just the way um, you approach the the media. You can approach it from a very technical standpoint. That's not the way I tend to approach it. Um, my approach um, and what I'm really interested in is historic photographs when they were working with really, really rudimentary equipment and um you can get lost in the equipment um pretty easily yeah. is the gear all about the gear yeah. right if if only i had the right. gear
1: <laughs> the latest the greatest the right right yeah. Yeah.
2: my first my very yeah, first just... camera like many uh early photography students was you know an, an oatmeal box right the, the the first pin pinhole camera that I made in second grade out of an oatmeal box was what started all of it. And one of the photography shows that, um, that rings, I I don't know. I saw it probably 30 years ago was a pinhole show. And the most compelling, uh, pieces were made in cardboard boxes or eggshells or, you know, I mean, just anything. It wasn't, it was so not about, about the equipment. Um, you know, I think the so, the why is so much more interesting than the how.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. but not too low. <laughs> Nick's a percussionist, so he's got all the gadgets. <laughs> uh, he's got a house full uh, of
0: gadgets. Uh, house no, full of gadgets. I'm not a gearhead, though. I'm not a gearhead. <laughs> that, that question came about from from Tony Ladish's uh, interview. He was talking about the gear and how people wait for. Uh, yeah. Money to come in, resources to come in, so they can buy the latest gear. Says so you don't, yeah. you don't need it. So, and you're just echoing that. Yeah.
2: yeah, yeah. Well, ironically, Tony is a is a is a friend, and Kyle's played lots of music with Tony, and um, yeah. so. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. Well, so we it, not surprising. We think along those same lines in terms of, and sure. I, th- I think he's right that lots of people wait to begin until they have the if only I. What dot dot dot, right? Whatever, whatever it is, whether it's about gear or studio space or opportunity, it's like, don't don't wait to to start, just start making.
0: Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe. Visit artsentrepreneurshippodcast.com to learn more about our guest and how you can help support artists, the arts and this podcast.